0: Before we start the show, if you are missing our daily episode from before the election, give the NPR One app a try. It's got all the radio reporting that we do for NPR and all of your favorite podcasts as well. You can find NPR One, O N E, on your App Store now. Hey, y'all, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. We are here with an update on some political news from the last few days including Donald Trump's tweets about, quote, illegal voting. He says that there are millions of people that did so. But to be clear, there is no evidence to support this claim at all. We'll also talk about Trump's latest cabinet appointments and the death of Fidel Castro. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter.
1: I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. And I'm
2: Scott Horsley. I also cover the
0: White House. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Nice to be back with you guys. Hey, Hey, Sam. I was gone for a week. Felt good. Where were you? So I went to Texas because that's where I'm from. But before heading to San Antonio to my mom's house, I spent uh, about two and a half days in Marfa, Texas. It's this little tiny town in West Texas that is like half cowboy, half art town. Uh, and with I a great a public radio yeah, station. great Marfa
1: public radio. I had drinks
0: with the folks there. Shout out to Marfa public radio. Uh, it was a really fun time. Are you saying cowboys can't be artists? I'm saying in Marfa, they are.
1: Cowboy poets.
0: Mamas,
2: don't let your babies grow grow up up to to be be artists.
1: artists. (laughs) Where'd you guys go?
0: Home.
2: Okay. (laughs) I did not brave the roads or the airports or anything. I stayed put right here in Washington, D.C.
3: What about you, Ron? I went to an artist colony with no cowboys called San Francisco.
0: Oh, different kind of artist colony. Yes. And now we're back at it. Uh, Before we get started, some quick housekeeping. Our live show in Boston, actually Cambridge this week, it's sold out. It's very exciting. I look forward to seeing you there if you've snacked tickets. Uh, Because we're taping that show this Thursday night, that live show will be our roundup for the week. You can hear it in your feed first thing Friday morning. All right? All right. So the big story this past couple days has been Donald Trump's tweet storm Sunday morning. Uh, He claimed that millions of people voted illegally in this election and that without them, he would have won the popular vote. At this point, Hillary Clinton leads in the popular vote by more than two million votes. Um, The exact tweet that Trump sent, among many others, was, quote, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Um,
1: Fact check, false? Can we just... That, yes, definitely. I mean, like, there is literally no evidence, certainly no evidence that millions of people voted illegally. Yeah. And even...
0: My question is, like, what is Trump's rationale in tweeting a thing like this? He won. I don't think he likes the fact that his Electoral College win
3: was not confirmed or was not driven by an overwhelming popular vote win. Uh, Most of the time, the Electoral College and the popular vote coincide. But we've had now five times when they haven't. And uh, obviously, he did not want to be one of them. And it is a little embarrassing to talk about your landslide and your mandate and your great, great message from the people when more people voted against you than voted for you.
0: Now, Tam, you've spent some time digging into where some of these allegations come from. There's some stuff from an old Washington Post article. What is the deal with the roots of this conspiracy theory?
1: Let me try. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this morning... uh, And and
2: we should be clear, these are not necessarily the source of the material. These are post-facto rationalizations for the claim that Donald Trump made. Similar claims made elsewhere. Yes. Yes.
1: So I was on this call that the transition team has every morning with reporters. I asked... Can you please point to evidence of millions of people who fraudulently voted? And there was another tweet where Donald Trump had claimed that there was voter fraud in New Hampshire, Virginia and California. Now, election officials in all three of those states deny that there was any sort of widespread voter fraud. So I asked the transition team, can you please point to evidence of these things? They did not point to evidence of these things. What they did point to was a 2014 article that was published on the washington post website by some political scientists
0: on a blog called the monkey Monkey Cage. cage yes
1: And so basically what that article was saying is that there were some large number of people who were not citizens of the United States who were registered to vote.
0: And they said so in a survey?
1: Yeah, it was based on this big set of survey data that these political scientists sort of pulled out this tiny little piece of and extrapolated. Well, the people who did the survey then later came out and debunked the researchers' claims and said... Actually, the much more likely scenario here is that people checked the wrong box and accidentally said that they weren't citizens of the United States when they were citizens of the United States. Because some people
0: came back and said, I checked the wrong box, right?
1: Because in past years, it was like in 2010, they said they were citizens. But then in 2012, they said they weren't citizens. And that seems highly unlikely.
0: Yes.
3: Yes, Plus, none of that actually relates to somebody going and voting. In fact, it does not illustrate that anybody actually went and voted at any time.
1: And that was a 2014 article. Two years we were ago. We were asking, you know, the president-elect tweeted that there was voter fraud this and election. illegal voting that happened in this election. So the transition team never really provided anything about 2016. They also, though, pointed the second piece of evidence that they had was a Pew research study of voter rolls. And, Scott, you, you actually got in touch with Pew about that.
2: That's right. This is a 2012 study that the uh, Pew Charitable Trust did where they did talk about some problems with the voter registration system in the country. They said it needs an upgrade, and they focused on inefficient, inaccurate voter registration, people who move from state to state, people who die and don't get cleared off the voter rolls. But the, the Pew Trust tells us none of this is evidence of fraud at the polling place. So, you know, this is
0: a big deal, right? I mean, we we are now in this situation where Jill Stein, third-party candidate, is asking for a recount in three states. Team Clinton has signed on to some of that recount. And the Trump campaign now is saying, you know, these numbers are fishy. Like, what does this do for the average voter? Do they see all of this and say, how can I trust this system at all if everyone involved is saying it's kind of wrong
3: well I don't think it's fair to say that everyone involved is saying it's kind of wrong okay but the among other things uh, certainly the Trump people are not saying that the electoral college determination that he was the winner is wrong and they do have at least in Donald Trump's mind some question about whether or not some of the popular vote was questionable but they have no evidence for that so I don't see any reason why the average person would need to take that seriously number two with respect to what's going on with uh, Wisconsin and the recount, The only people who are saying they want to see this done are the Jill Stein campaign, and they are saying that they have heard enough about hacking and heard enough about intentions of some foreign actors to get involved in our election that they think we ought to look at the closest states, and these three states were among the very closest to 1% or a little over 1% or a little less than 1% of the vote in each th- of the three, and they have raised some money, a substantial amount of money, more than $6 million, more than $6 million. so that they can pay for this. And, and pay some
0: campaign debt.
1: Maybe.
3: We won't impute their motives. We'll just say they're raising a lot of money, and they may not need all of it for the recounts. And this has gotten a certain amount of attention, actually, for Jill Stein and the Green Party candidate in this election and in the last election. Perhaps we've seen her more on television in the last 48 hours than we did in the last several months. But the Clinton campaign has said, we'll send a lawyer, we'll look in. But they said specifically that they had not seen evidence to make them contest the result, and that they had not seen evidence of hacking, and that they were going along with this because somebody was going to be looking at the boat and they're interested parties.
1: Yeah, I actually have the Medium post that was written by the Clinton team's lawyer. And, and I would say that signing on is probably too strong a word. So uh, then
0: what word would you use? I
1: would I would go with the word that they're using, which is, uh, which is participating. Okay. Well, well no, no. <laughs> Seriously, there's a difference between signing on and Putting the money forward to help with the recount, filing the paperwork to make the recount happen, and simply sending lawyers to some hearings to make sure that your interests are protected. Which, which
3: in all likelihood, the Trump campaign ought to do too. Because if there's a recount going on anywhere, you have interests to protect. You should go and make sure that everything's being conducted on the up and up.
1: Um, But let me just read what the Clinton lawyers said in this post on Medium. Because we had not uncovered any actionable evidence of hacking or outside attempts to alter the voting technology, we had not planned to exercise this option ourselves, meaning the recount. But now that a recount has been initiated in Wisconsin, we intend to participate in order to ensure the process proceeds in a manner that is fair to all sides. Then he goes on to say that they don't think that this could change the results in any way, that the difference between Clinton and Trump and even the closest state, which is Michigan, is far larger than has ever been moved by any recount ever and then he goes on to write, but regardless of the potential to change the outcome of any of the states, we feel it is important on principle to ensure our campaign is legally represented in any court proceedings and represented on the ground in order to monitor the recount process itself.
3: And what they're trying to do here is eliminate any real suspicion, any actual suspicion, as opposed to speculative Talk And there's been a lot of that, and there always is. And there are going to be people with conspiracy theories about 9-11 and whatever else you want to talk about. But any actual reason to, in any sense, question whether or not some outside actor was doing some hacking. Once that's been determined, I don't know what else there is really to do here. They can recount the votes. Nobody expects there to be a substantial change up or down for either candidate. There is a theory group out there, and again, anybody can come up with this stuff, that says that the voting anomalies that they see between the way Wisconsin voted this time and the last two times were played out also in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and that means they think there's something fishy. I think the rest of us think there's something that the Trump campaign did right, or that the Clinton campaign did wrong, or that the voters of those three states decided on their own, and that
0: that's the explanation, not Russian hack. What's Jill Stein's rationale for this recount?
1: In the paperwork that Jill Stein filed in Wisconsin, they write this. The well-documented and conclusive evidence of foreign interference in the presidential race before the election, that being like the email hack of the DNC, et etc., along with the irregularities observed in Wisconsin, uh, more people voting absentee than in previous years, call into question the results and indicate the possibility that widespread breach occurred
2: you know, one institution that has stood up for the integrity and the reliability of our election system is the president and the White House. Uh, president Obama has, and the, and the White House have said that they think that the election results as delivered on election day uh, reflect the will of the American people. And I think that is a larger point because as a country, we do have a stake in public confidence that our elections are sound. And all of this, whether it's Jill Stein's legal challenge uh, or or Donald Trump's uh, tweets about millions of unauthorized voters, I think do have the potential to undermine that confidence in a, in a very dangerous way. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about Secretary of State and who that might be. Um, of course, it's gonna matter a lot when it comes to America's place in the world uh, during uh, Trump's administration. Trump met with Mitt Romney. They'll meet again tomorrow. Uh, but over the last few days, Trump's campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, has been publicly attacking Romney as an option for secretary of state. She tweeted on Thanksgiving Day, quote, receiving deluge of social media and private comms re-Romney. Then she linked to an article from Politico that had the headline, some Trump loyalists warned against Romney as secretary of state. And then she talked about it um, on Meet the Press this Sunday with Chuck Todd. Why are you campaigning against Mitt Romney as Secretary of State?
4: I'm not campaigning against anyone. I'm just a a a concerned citizen. I'm not campaigning against Mitt Romney. But you don't think he should uh, be the choice? I can't tell you. I'm not. Look, Chuck. This is very simple. I'm not trying to make the news. I'm trying to reflect the news here. And I am just astonished. At the breath, the breathtaking volume and intensity of blowback that I see just as one person close to the president-elect is receiving unsolicited from people on social media, and particularly in private communications, people feel betrayed to think that Governor Romney, who went out of his way mm-hmm. to question the character and the intellect and the integrity of Donald Trump, now our president-elect, would be given the most uh, significant cabinet post of all, Secretary of State. And uh, that is a decision that only one man can make, President-elect okay. Donald Trump. I will respect it and mm. I will support it 1,000%. But I'm reflecting what the grassroots are saying. Right. They, feel, you know, they feel a bit betrayed to think that you can get a Romney back in there after everything he did. We don't even know if he voted for, for Donald mm. Trump. He and his consultants were nothing but awful to Donald Trump for a year. So, what is, okay, so, so what, what is this, so what Ron?
3: So, so, so let me just say, Wait till Kellyanne starts to campaign against Mitt Romney.
0: (laughs) She is one of Trump's higher ups. What is her rationale in doing this?
1: There are two options here. Okay, And it could be both at the same time. One is that she is communicating the message that Donald Trump wants Uh communicated. Which is what I think.
3: Which is supposed to be her job.
1: And two is that Donald Trump watches a lot of television and she is communicating with the president elect through television appearances wow. and also the public is watching this and she could be swaying trying to sway public opinion in addition to internal opinion in the in the, the transition
2: let's let's just rewind it is true that Mitt Romney delivered a stinging indictment of Donald Trump's business career all of the all these things that Kelly uh, Kellyanne Conway is saying about Mitt Romney and his conduct towards Trump during the campaign are true and you can certainly see why the Trump loyalists would be repelled at the idea of a Mitt Romney in the administration. Of course, those are exactly the reasons that the establishment Republicans are clamoring to see Mitt Romney in the in the Trump administration because they want that establishment voice.
0: Now, Romney is not the only one up for consideration for this job. There's a few other names, right?
1: Right. So one name that has been in circulation for a long time is Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor. Uh, there are some people, including some Republicans in Congress, who have concerns about some of his uh, overseas business interests and, and how that could be problematic. But he's definitely, I mean, as much as we know, still in the running. Also this week, though, Donald Trump, in addition to having a second meeting with Mitt Romney, is meeting with David Petraeus. He is the uh, former CIA director, a former uh, general who uh, was very well respected in the military. He was the guy behind the surge in Iraq and Afghanistan. But then he actually ended up in a lot of trouble because he gave information that was uh, classified information to his mistress and And then lied about it.
0: and, And then he pled guilty to criminal misdemeanor charges of mishandling classified information when he shared that stuff with his biographer slash girlfriend. Yes. So now we have Trump in some high level meetings uh, with a guy who got in trouble for mishandling classified info after Trump campaigned aggressively against Hillary Clinton saying she was unfit for office because she mishandled classified information. And James
1: Comey, the FBI director, in his testimony about Hillary Clinton's email, Basically said what General Petraeus did was, worse. was way worse well, than what lied Hillary to Clinton the FBI. did.
3: He lied to the FBI. That's the worst thing you can possibly do if you're FBI Director James Comey.
2: And, <laughs> yeah. and we, sh- we shouldn't be flip here about, obviously, a very distinguished military general who is widely revered and has played an important role in the defense of our country. But this was a man who Donald Trump said, look, how come David Petraeus gets prosecuted for mishandling classified information by giving it to his mistress and Hillary Clinton doesn't get prosecuted for the way she handled classified information on her personal email server? James Comey, the director of the FBI, answered that question very directly in explaining the difference. And he said, look, when you have David Petraeus, he what he did was far worse, and he lied about it to the FBI, which the FBI takes a very dim view of.
1: So that that's a little messy. Um, somebody else who he is m- meeting with is uh, Senator Bob Corker, uh, who is— uh, of- Tennessee Tennessee, Tennessee Foreign Relations Committee. Senate Foreign Relations Committee
3: chairman and very well respected among his fellow senators and very well respected in the foreign policy community more generally. Uh, But to some people's minds a little besmirched because he did in some respects uh, have something to do with structuring the agreement by which the Iran deal got through. And of course, Donald Trump's been very critical of the Iran deal. Bob Corker himself voted against the Iran deal, but there was this arrangement by which the Senate got to uh, weigh in, but the deal sort of went through anyway. So some people blamed him for that. There's controversy about everybody.
2: Remember and, when Bob Corker spent a day campaigning with Donald Trump? There was some talk that he might be a vice presidential contender. They they uh, they were the most awkward pair on the campaign trail imaginable. So not, not necessarily a whole lot of chemistry there.
3: Not made in heaven. Not made in heaven. And the other name that comes up a lot is John Bolton, who was the United States ambassador to the United Nations, uh, not confirmed by the Senate, but serving with George W. Bush's interim appointment. Uh, very, very controversial figure, even in the Senate of that time, back in the Bush era. If you're interested
2: in upsetting the apple cart of diplomacy, John Bolton would be your man.
3: Yes, he has been an outspoken ultra-hawk, uber-hawk for many, many years, and uh, would not seem to be compatible with the kind of foreign policy that Donald Trump's been talking about all through the campaign, but... His is another name that's out there. Well, I I think he'd be pretty compatible, wouldn't he? I? Mean America first and but like no, but he's an intervener. He's, he's an intervener. He thinks we should be in these countries with our troops and uh, asserting our will and throwing our weight around. And um, okay, that's so there, what he's okay, always there's a supported. matrix
2: here. There's yeah. there's intervention versus non-intervention. And that's then right. There's the... But
3: America first also means you know America stay at home. It, Isolation. It means, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe not isolationism, but not interventionism. Yeah, yeah.
1: So at this point. Secretary of State is really just like a jump ball. There's a There are a lot of names, yeah. <laughs> and we don't know who is really, truly the top candidate because there are a lot of names and a lot of people going through those golden elevator doors at Trump Tower to see Donald Trump.
0: My question for the whole group is watching this transition unfold for Team Trump. All of the, like, he said, she said, Kellyanne saying people are talking... The list of who's going to meet with Trump and the photo ops of him with people at his resort. Is all of this out of the ordinary or is this just how transitions are? It seems like there's a lot of stuff that we're hearing about that I didn't feel like I heard about with Obama's transition. I think
2: think it's completely out of the ordinary, but it is completely consistent with what we saw of Donald Trump. During the campaign.
3: Consider how many campaign managers he had during just the last six months of his campaign. I mean, you don't usually see three changes in that period of time just before the election. Uh, This has been a volatile campaign operation from the beginning. And he is an unconventional, if you will, non-politician politician. And right now, at least, it looks like he's bringing his personality with him to the Oval Office.
0: In other news, we talked a lot in the last episode about possible conflicts of interest in Trump's administration, uh, his real estate and licensing deals all over the world. In an interview with The New York Times last week, Trump had this to say about possible conflicts. Quote, the law is totally on my side, meaning the president can't have a conflict of interest. That's been reported very widely, despite that I don't want there to be a conflict of interest anyway. And the laws the president can't. He seems to believe that if he's president, there's no problem because he's not breaking any laws. And it is true that the president is not subject to conflict of interest
1: laws. That is true. That is absolutely true. There are other laws, uh, including... Uh, emoluments. Yes. That's the emoluments clause, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, in the Constitution that says that the president of the United States cannot uh, get a a benefit from, uh, a financial benefit from a foreign country. And then there's also just like basic laws like bribery. You know, it's
3: not really bribery we're talking about here. It's, yeah. it's, it's really, what do, we, what do we think of having a president who has... Extensive real estate holdings in foreign countries that we're also going to have foreign policy dealings with. To what degree might he or might his administration uh, make foreign policy decisions that were helpful to Trump interests
0: financially? Where do challenges or questions about this come from? I mean, not congressional investigation if it's all GOP-controlled. Like, does this mean that for these conflicts to be named, it's going to have to be through lawsuits or what?
3: Well, the first place that they would arise in all likelihood would be through journalism. Yes. That there would be news reports of things and that at some juncture or another, some of these things might begin to bother some of the people who have not been bothered by the prospect of these conflicts, uh, despite the very widespread holdings of uh, Trump Incorporated, if you will. So at that point, when it starts to bother people, then you might see people who feel disadvantaged by some of it actually going to court actually filing lawsuits. Perhaps state attorneys general could see something that they would go after Trump Incorporated for and take him into a federal court. That could eventually come to the point where it would have serious consequences for him. But I don't see it coming from Congress unless it is truly
2: egregious or unless we have a terribly different Congress during some point in the Trump presidency. Just one little wrinkle. A lot of these holdings overseas are not actually real estate. A lot of them are not cases where Donald Trump owns the property and could in theory liquidate the property. A lot of these are licensing deals where he has loaned or rented his name to mm-hmm. some hotel or office building developer in Indonesia or or the Philippines or India. And there's really no way to separate that from Trump because what you're what you're selling is the Trump brand.
0: Also, last couple of days, Trump has announced two nominees for cabinet positions. Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, she will be Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. also heard that Betsy DeVos, a billionaire Republican donor,
1: will be secretary of education. Pending confirmation.
0: Exactly. Um, Those two picks seem to be outside of Trump's orbit?
3: Well, first thing, that they were the first people that he brought in who weren't uh, white males. But they're also people that have very strong identification apart from Donald Trump. Nikki Haley was among the sternest, stiffest, toughest critics that Donald Trump had during the primaries. She was very hard on him, called him the loudest voice in the room, not by name, but by clear implication, and said we shouldn't be governed by such a loud voice. And she was clearly appealing to him to tone down his rhetoric on immigration, a number of other subjects. And so I think it was a surprise for a lot of people to know that Donald Trump was large enough to forgive some of the things that she had said about him and give her this plum job, which really puts her in the world spotlight as the spokesperson for America.
0: First thing I thought when I saw her appointment, I said, oh, she's going to run for president in a few years with
2: a very impressive resume.
0: Because she'll get the
1: foreign policy experience.
2: Yeah. Which she doesn't actually have... Going into the job, aside from some trade missions as governor of South Carolina. What about DeVos? Uh, Betsy DeVos is uh, married to the heir, to the Amway fortune. She's a billionaire, uh, like Donald Trump claims to be. And she has been uh, a real promoter uh, at the state level and and beyond of uh, school choice, uh, which is – and vouchers, which is – in some cases, using public money to help people pay to go to private schools with very mixed results in her native Michigan. Uh, But school choice is something that Donald Trump has has been supportive of during the campaign. So that's not a huge surprise. Uh, Betsy DeVos was also a supporter of the Common Core, which Donald Trump was very much against. And right around the time she got this nomination, Betsy DeVos had sort of a... uh, A come-to-Jesus moment on the Common Core and now thinks very differently about it. Uh
3: And she also represents that kind of Republican who perhaps we would now call a Mitt Romney Republican, a very establishment Republican, old-school Republican. Uh, She is part of that establishment. So here again, there's an olive branch to those people who were not always on board the Trump train.
0: Last bit of news... um... Former Cuban President Fidel Castro is dead at the age of 90 years old. He hasn't run the country of Cuba for a while. His younger brother, Raul, has been doing that. Uh, The Obama administration recently has relaxed travel restrictions and moved to normalize relations with Cuba. What does his death mean right now for that, Scott?
2: Uh, This was a moment that... uh has been a long time in coming. And it was remarkable to uh, hear the reaction of Cuban exiles uh, in the middle of the night going out on the streets of Cayocho in, in Little Havana in Miami, cheering the news. Uh, we've heard reports from Havana of Cubans uh, just sort of stunned. Many presidents, many American presidents <laughs> thought, they, thought they would be the one to uh, wave goodbye to Fidel Castro. And now that moment is finally upon us. And it's a little bit anticlimactic because, as you yeah. say, he had been he had been pushed aside about a decade ago uh, by himself. He, he took himself uh, pushed himself aside, and because you know, in almost two years ago now, December seventeenth of uh, twenty fourteen, we had this remarkable thaw in what had been a half-century diplomatic freeze between the United States and Cuba. And of course, there have been times in
3: his career when Donald Trump thought that the economic embargo on Cuba, which is still in place despite the diplomatic thaw and which would have to be raised by Congress, uh, was an idea that you know had outlived its usefulness and that the economic embargo really should be looked at again and maybe that It was time for the United States to get involved economically with Cuba. Lately, as a candidate in the last months of the campaign, he was very explicit about saying, no, no, we really need to raise the bar on this. We need to keep the economic uh, sanctions in place. And we also need to take another look at this diplomatic thaw and maybe pull back on that a little bit, unless the Cubans, that is to say, Raul Castro and his handpicked successor in a couple of years, are willing to commit to real political reforms, to free press, to open elections, and to moving away from the one-party system. A lot of people thought that Raul Castro was being restrained in whatever he was willing to do by the continued presence of his dying brother. But now that Fidel is finally gone, who knows? Maybe more negotiation is a possibility.
1: Donald Trump tweeted today... Um, quote, if Cuba is unwilling to make a better deal for the Cuban people, the Cuban American people and the U.S. as a whole, I will terminate deal. I'm not sure that there was, strictly speaking, a deal. There,
2: there is there is not a a single deal between the Obama administration and the Raul Castro administration. But what we have seen over the last couple of years is a dramatic relaxation of the travel and trade restrictions between the U.S. and Cuba, all from the American side, much less adjustment on the Cuban side. And as Ron says, the the congressionally mandated embargo is still in place. So the the Obama administration has loosened the rules as much as they possibly can under the embargo, which only Congress has the power to lift. Just today, for example, we saw the resumption of direct air flights between the United States and Havana, Cuba. We've seen direct air flights uh, to other cities in Cuba for the last few months, uh, the Obama administration has tried very hard to cement this policy by having so many American businesses and tourists and just people invested in this opening to Cuba that it will be hard for the incoming Trump administration to shift gears when Obama was In Cuba last March, he took Carlos Gutierrez, the Cuban-born former commerce secretary from the Bush administration, along with him. And Carlos Gutierrez said at the time, there's going to come a point where reversing this policy will seem like a crazy idea, and I think we're just about at that point. We'll see if the new Trump administration sees it the same way or if they do, in fact, try to uh, reimpose some of those trade and travel restrictions. For me, the most
0: interesting tweet about Fidel Castro's death came from Trump himself Uh, just after the news broke. He wrote just this, Fidel Castro is dead! Exclamation point. (laughs) It was... It was something.
3: If you don't appreciate why Fidel Castro gets exclamation points when he dies, it's because he seems to have lived forever and gone from an era right after World War II to where we are today as the leader of this island where the communist way of life, the whole philosophy of communism that we have spent so much of our lives dealing with uh, had a foothold in the
2: Western Hemisphere. President Obama has called this the last legacy in the Americas of the Cold War. And the irony is that in our effort to isolate Cuba, what the United States wound up doing was isolating itself. We became a pariah at Western Hemisphere meetings uh, because the questions were all about U.S. policy towards Cuba instead of the human rights abuses and the outrage of the Castro regime. Which
1: did happen and are real and terrible. Oh, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And now that our policy towards Cuba has has changed, at least from the administration's point of view, if not from Congress, the other countries in the Americas are more free to turn their attention on Cuba and say, okay, now you need to get your act together. Now, if the Trump administration does reverse, that could once again make the United States something of an outcast in the Western Hemisphere. Although I think it's safe to say that Donald Trump is not overly concerned with maintaining good relations with our neighbors to the North and South.
0: Okay. That's a wrap for today. Reminder, this week's roundup will be out Friday morning be recorded live in front of an audience in Cambridge, Massachusetts on Thursday night. Look forward to seeing you folks up there. If you're joining us, in the meantime, stay up on our coverage on the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter.
1: I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House.
3: I'm Scott Horsley. I also cover the White House. And I'm Ron Elving,
0: editor-correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.